I wanted to take a moment to say thanks for listening to this podcast. Your support makes it possible for the series to exist. By subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show, you'll help others find it too. So please take a minute to rate and review an absurd result. And thanks again. As a reminder, this series does contain details of a sexual assault and also adult language. Previously on our show... And I guess there were probably five guys that walked out and she had a, an obvious reaction to one of them and she identified Bromgard as the person that had assaulted her. And I'm thinking he is the guy that did this horrible thing and uh, I want him put away. They always came looking at me and it's like, I didn't do it. You have a composite sketch and the description that, as I recall, was basically, you know, a, a young white man uh, with blondish brown hair and acne on his face. Well, you know, you, you've now described probably 70% of the high school seniors at Billings, Montana. So here's Jim Bromgard in jail, serving 40 years for assaulting Linda Glantz when she was eight. Only he says he's innocent. He's lost all of his appeals, and he asks his lawyer for a Hail Mary. To get the Innocence Project to take his case, he needs something his botched trial never touched on, DNA. That's where Tova Zern comes in. It's just such an interesting thing that there could be this tiny little piece of something in a box that's just sitting downstairs that nobody can, that no one's going to even bother doing anything with, which is mind-boggling to me. Tova Zern was Tova Rosenberg when she was a student at Cardoza Law. The school is part of Yeshiva University in Manhattan. A couple of offices there are the birthplace of the National Innocence Project. Now, of course, the project's a huge organization. It has chapters in most states, including mine, Montana. I'm Jewel Banville, and this is episode three of An Absurd Result, The Test. Tova Zern was among dozens of students who cycled in and out of this law clinic connected to the Innocence Project. The students did the day-to-day work, writing letters, making calls, talking to prisoners, and just generally doing the prep for lawyers like Peter Neufeld. He's the co-founder of the Innocence Project who handled Jimmy's case. We met him in the last episode. And you're meeting Tova because she is the one who helped figure out that what was inside a box in the basement of the Yellowstone County Courthouse could be the key to unlock everything about this case. Just, it wasn't in anybody's way, and it was just, all right, so it's down there. It's from so long ago anyway, and one day we'll get to it, and we'll clean it up. You know, it's like, it's crazy because it shouldn't have been there. It should have been destroyed years before that. Tova talked to me about it on Zoom from her office at a private elementary school in Queens. She knew then Yellowstone County didn't have a policy for preserving evidence from trials more than a decade ago. But on an evidence list, she saw the possibility for DNA. It all comes down to a tough but important detail. A pair of pink underwear in Linda's room has a semen stain on it that had never been tested. But even if they found it, expectations were still pretty low. And nobody had gone down there because most of the evidence that was down there was so old. And either they assumed it had been tampered with or they assumed that it just wouldn't be there because it had been so many years, you know, so many years earlier. But a courthouse staffer told Toba there was at least one box with Bromgard's name on it. So she got excited. Tova remembers the box may have ended up there after a fire in a different storage area. Though I haven't been able to confirm that and her notes are long gone. She does know the boxes weren't alphabetized or indexed in any kind of searchable file. In a case like this where 
they know it hinged on whatever, you know, biological, you know, uh, material they put in that box. And you're saying you hope it's still in there. And you're telling me you found the box. And I'm going, don't ruin it. Like, don't cut it open. Don't do anything. Don't check yet. Just, you know, very gently and delicately put it to the side. Make sure nobody goes in there who shouldn't. And you have to really hound these people because, you know, frankly, (laughs) they're government employees and sometimes they want to help you and sometimes they're busy, which I totally understand. But there's somebody's life hanging in the balance. It's very scary. There are moments of crazy luck in this story. And this was one. The evidence in the box had remained sealed since the initial investigation 15 years prior. But very few labs did this kind of test in the early 2000s, and it was expensive. The Innocence Project wondered if Jimmy or his family could foot the bill, which was in the neighborhood of about seven grand. They, they told me that the DNA test cost $7,000, I believe is what it was, and it's like, so I just said, yeah, well, there you go. I mean, I, I, I did that. I, you hope for the best, but expect the worst. So, I mean, you, you know, just another thing, another bump in the road. Jimmy figured that was it. No money, no test, no freedom. He went back to his daily routines in prison. But the Innocence Project had been courting investors, people in means who could pay for these tests. And they found a guy named Fred Hone in Rhode Island. He died in 2019, but his story's an interesting one. So come with me down this rabbit hole for a minute. Fred Hone was a former teacher who went on to found a company that primarily made really great snowplows. That's how he made his money. But before that, he went to jail for three months, and afterward, he made it his mission to help other people he felt shouldn't be behind bars. According to newspapers in Rhode Island, Fred Hone went to jail because of a relationship with a student, and he taught sixth grade math. He was forced to resign his teaching job after that became public. Later, they did get married. He was in his late 40s, and she was 17 and pregnant when he got out of jail. He told reporters at that time the state needed to stay out of his business. And then, years later, after a divorce, Hone became the one who paid for the DNA test that could prove Jimmy Ray Bromgard did not rape a little girl. Hone talked about his involvement with Jimmy's case for a 2006 documentary that ran on court TV. I was always a lock him up and throw the key away guy, having done that short stint in prison and known that innocent people are there. Really smart meal. When Hone hears about Jimmy, he knows what he must do. Well, the Jimmy Brown guy, he donated the money for my DNA testing. Jimmy's case was unbelievable. I decided that this was the best possible thing. This is the best possible way I could spend some money. The evidence went to Forensic Science Associates, a private lab in Richmond, California. Tova says it was one of only a few options in 2002. And actually, there were certain labs that would only test it if you had enough of a sample to break it into two. Because they said in case something happened, because the evidence was old, they didn't want to be like held responsible for, let's say, damaging the sample, and then you're done. And then you have to wait until they test it, and then it comes back, and you're sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting, and you're waiting for that phone call. I mean, obviously, it's not really as... The lab in California sends back results. The test is conclusive. There's no way the full DNA profile present on that evidence is a match to Jimmy. While Peter Neufeld and the Innocence Project prep to get him out, the Attorney General insists the Montana Crime Lab repeat the test. While everyone waits, guards come for Jimmy. He's working out in the gym when they tell him he's going into isolation, and they don't tell him why. So then I'm in the hole, and I was in there for like three days, and uh, the captain pulled me out for a phone call, and there was Peter calling me to tell me that the reason they locked me up was because the DNA test came back and I was innocent. 
Newfield says the state put Jimmy in the hole to protect him. If he was innocent and something happened to him while that played out, well, it's a pretty good lawsuit. After Montana's crime lab comes back with identical results to the lab in California, Jimmy Ray Bromgard is determined innocent through DNA exclusion. The evidence on the underwear was for sure left by someone else. And on October 1st, 2002, Jimmy walks out. A local news photographer captures his huge grin as he reaches to hug a nephew born after he went into prison. Jimmy's time was just shy of 15 years. He was 19 when he went in and 33 when he came out. The New York Times sent a reporter to cover the exoneration. Jim told him that what he really wanted to do was go swimming, to jump in a pool, splash around, and feel free. Before the pool, though, which did happen, his mom tells me they all went to lunch at Four B's, a chain of family restaurants in Montana. Diana Merrill remembers how her son had to relearn a few things about cutlery. And Jimmy was going to eat his lunch and he was going to use his fingers. And I looked at him and said, Jimmy, you can use your knife and your fork. And it was like a shock to him. <laughs> you know, he says, oh, really? <laughs> I was like, she said, you can use a knife, you know? I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I wondered if you remembered that. Oh, yeah. Jim moved in with his mom for a bit after he got out. Actually, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> it was really nice. It was different. Of course, you know, it was different, but it was really nice to have him there and know he was there. Did it take some time to, like, get, re-get to know each other after that long? It did take a little bit, but I, it didn't take a long time. It was, like, almost like he'd never left it sometimes. How was your anger level through all of this stuff? Or were you maybe not? I don't know. I was extremely disappointed in the justice system. As far as really angry, I don't know that I was, I don't know if you could call it anger, but it was a resentment, but it was not real, it was not real anger, but I was really resentful. Mm -hmm. And I just did not trust the justice system anymore. Jim's mom goes to church and she says that's helped her over the years. And hearing from her son sort of regularly helps too. When he first got out, oh, I don't know, for I don't know how many months, he would call me every day. You know, of course, you know, that once you get used to being <laughs> out, this phone calls sort of diminish. But he still texts and he still calls and, yeah, he still teases me because I'm short and old. <laughs> you always got to laugh every day about something. Sometimes it gets hard to laugh, but. Yeah, you can just laugh about something. Huh. While Jim was in prison, the girl who picked him out in court, she didn't think about him much. Yeah, I mean, it's not that I never thought about him. Um, I would tell friends about this once in a while. It wasn't something, obviously, that I talked about. Um, but once in a while, I would talk to my friends about it, and uh, I was very confident. It's like, he's in jail. Hopefully he's not up for parole anytime soon. And it's still a horrible thing that happened to me that I just, it's just part of my life now. Um, I didn't, not that I didn't think about it, but I was just confident in where everything had gone. Linda believed he was guilty and she lived her life. In a lot of ways, she found the perfect escape from reminders of what she went through in Billings. What mostly shaped Linda as an adult happened a few hours from where she grew up inside America's first national park. For 15 years, starting when she was 19, she worked in Yellowstone. She worked the busy summer seasons full of tourists, 
but she was also among the dedicated few who stay on for winter in the park. And that's a whole thing out here. Average snowfall in Yellowstone is about 13 feet, but it can get as deep as 30. So workers make a pretty big commitment. They can't just come and go whenever they feel like it. It's a hard place to be in the winter. It is. I, you park your car in Gardner, about 52 miles away from where you're living and working, and you take snow coaches in. The coaches are like buses on tank tracks. Those and snowmobiles and skis are about the only way to get anywhere in most of the park for about half the year. We talked a lot about her life in Yellowstone. On our first meeting, when we walked around getting to know each other, and then later at her house. It was, and it still is, a really important time for her. She did various jobs in her 15 years there, starting out with housekeeping and ending as a manager with food and beverage. Early on, she cleaned out cabins built forever ago with flat roofs, so the snow and water damage every year would be intense. The rumor was the cabins were supposed to go to Everglades National Park, but arrived in Yellowstone instead. Yeah, I cleaned flat roof cabins that had things like mushrooms growing out of the, the carpets and stuff. After her shifts, she'd meet up with friends at the employee pub. And yes, there's a bar just for employees inside Yellowstone. Yes, they need to keep us away from the tourists. <laughs> That's where she started talking to this guy she'd met once before, Patty Glantz. He was from the South and sounded like it, he still does. I grew up in a little town called Soddy Daisy, Tennessee. It's, uh, it's a little bit bigger than Livingston. Uh, pretty, pretty nice little town uh, surrounded by the lake, uh, Chickamauga Lake. I grew up water skiing on the weekends in the summer, and we didn't do any winter sports because, well, we just don't really have winter there. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, December and January. Patty was funny, and he knew everybody, and he was nice. But I remember, like, talking about our families and stuff, like, immediately. Um, I had my own room, so he came back to my room with me. And at the end of the night, it was probably, like, 3 in the morning. I had to work at 7. I didn't care. I was 21, whatever. Sleep didn't matter so much. And at the end of the night, um, I was like, oh, okay, you know, I got to go to bed because I have to work early. And Were you just talking the whole time? Just talking the whole time. I'm not even doing the PG version of it. This is the actual version. And at the end of the night, he just stuck his hand out and shook my hand. I was like, thanks. That was really fun. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and this kind of thing happened. We would meet at the pub. We would talk. He would come back to my room. He would, like, shake my hand. And sometimes maybe a little pat on the back, and then he would leave. And I was like, I guess I've just met my new best friend. <laughs> you know, because that's all it's ever going to be. Um, and then eventually... Things moved on from that. He came mm -hmm. he well, I think he was trying to be respectful. Um, he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't going to spend that much time with me and <laughs> not make a move eventually, so. So during all these, like, really, really long talks, did you talk about what you've been through? <laughs> oh, no, that took, um, I want to say, at least another year. Linda and Patty moved in together, first into a dorm room. Eventually, they had an RV inside the park. And Patty wants to be clear about that. It was luxury living. You know, people, like we tell people, oh, we lived in a camper. You know, and they're like, oh, really, you lived in a camper? You don't understand, living in a camper there is a gated community. You know, you're the, you're the, high, the highest level of people when you have a, your own fifth wheel. We could have a dog. <laughs> yeah, we could have a dog. We could eat, we <laughs> yeah. could cook our own food. 
Um, we could have a fire outside of our place and how we wanted, things like that. That's where they were when things started moving toward Jimmy's freedom. But they didn't know much about it because Linda was basically off the grid. Her parents were the ones who'd get the call after the Innocence Project got involved. Here's her mom, Katie O'Sullivan. I got a call that the county attorney wanted to meet with me and my husband. So we went down there and they said that um, uh, through DNA they had established that Bromgard was not the perpetrator. And I probably asked three times, are you sure, are you sure, are you sure? And I really had a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that he didn't do it. And I think it was self-defense for me because if he didn't do it, then somebody else did and somebody is still running around out there. And, you know, what little sense of security that Linda was able to acquire after was going to be shot to hell. Linda's mom visited her in the park pretty frequently. She came one weekend and then figured out she'd need to come back the next week because she had news she needed to deliver in person. So I called Linda and said, I didn't want to tell her over the phone. And I think, again, her being in the park was a little bit of a sense of security, too, because it was such a close-knit, kind of out-of-the-way place. And so I called her and said, uh, I'd be coming up that weekend. And, uh, and she was like, Mom, you were just here. <laughs> I may have some story that <laughs> I had to do it for my job or something. But anyway, so she, you know, she said, great. And I went up there, and she was working when I got there, and I told her husband, Patty, why I was there. And, and uh, he was was and continues to be really supportive. Um, he knew what it was going to do to her. I was at work when she came in because, you know, normally we would try to arrange it so, like, if she comes in on my weekend, then we can hang out. But she was coming in on a night where I just, I had no choice. I had to go to work. I worked a night shift. I wasn't, I switched it up so I, instead of getting out at, like, 11.30, I could get out at, like, 10.30, but that was the best I could do. So the three of them, Linda, Patty, and Katie, are sitting there in a 1978 fifth wheel when, in a way, it all comes crashing down. The sense of security they've had all these years, believing your rapist or your child's rapist or your wife's rapist is behind bars. And then suddenly, he's not. It was such an emotional gut punch that it's hard to remember. I can't remember exact feelings. She remembers she had a few questions, like, what if he really did do it and they let him out? But she pretty quickly let that one go. I was shocked. I'd watched enough, like, you know, Dateline specials and stuff to have a, the vague understanding of what most people do with DNA. You know, that it was pretty dang reliable and that if they said the DNA didn't match, the DNA didn't match. But I, remember, I, I know I felt, like, humiliated and embarrassed because, you know, the rare times that I did talk about this whole situation, it's just like, oh no, I, I went to court. I, as a nine-year-old, I was, you know, I testified. I, you know, was so brave and I was so awesome. It's like the one part of like pride you have in this whole situation. Um, and it's like, yeah, and that motherfucker is in jail. And that's all we need to know about this. He's gonna be there for a really long time. But, you know, you start thinking about the fact that you know, I know my own personal thoughts and feelings towards him during that time, during when he was in jail, and just thinking, like, God, I was wrong about all of this. Like, how can this one thing that was supposed to be, like, such a secure thing in my life, how could I be wrong about all of it, you know? Clearly, a lot of people got it wrong. And for sure, this case is unusual, but it's not isolated. 
I'm going to hit you with a few numbers from the National Registry of Exonerations. The registry's data starts from when it was founded in 1989. So since 89, it shows 643 wrongful convictions for either child sex abuse or sexual assault. Okay, so nearly 650 people let out of prison and considered innocent of these felony sex crimes. DNA testing played a role in about 40% of those exonerations. Sometimes investigations reveal there was no crime. That can happen when someone's accused of and charged with rape, but police later conclude a rape didn't happen. So when we take out what the database labels as no crime cases, we're left with 244 exonerations that resemble this one, where after an exoneration of a sexual assault that involves DNA, the crime goes back to being unsolved. And it's amazing when you get a Jim Bromgard, an innocent person who goes free. But consider the Linda Glances, the victims of these original crimes. There are potentially hundreds of them like her, around 250 of them in this database. These victims, if they're alive and paying attention, have watched someone go free while still reckoning with all these questions about who really did this to them. Do we know them? Have they been a part of our lives for 14, 15 years? And we just didn't have any idea. Is he a stranger? Is he alive? Is he dead? You know, does he, does he know what he got away with? Does he know who I am? You know, is he paying attention? For sure, this isn't a terribly active investigation. It's a cold case, and cops don't have any leads. The most they did was check the DNA against what they had in the criminal database. I remember even thinking back then, like, how the hell are they going to do this? Like, if he's not in there, if the person who did this isn't in there, then what are we going to do? They're never going to find him. After Jim's in the news and people are talking again about her case, she doesn't come forward to talk to reporters. And after a while, it goes quiet. She and Patty move forward. They get married in 2005 in Cook City, a hard-to-get-to-town on the park's northeastern edge. They upgrade to a newer fifth wheel in the park. That's where they are in 2010 when another tragedy hits this family hard. Linda's older sister, Michelle Dubarry, you met her in episode one, watches her toddler die, the result of a horrific accident in a crosswalk. He wasn't quite two, sitting in a stroller pushed by his dad across a street in North Portland. An older driver hit the gas instead of the brake, slamming the stroller into a telephone pole. Seamus lived for 27 hours and died in the hospital. He was the first baby in the family, Michelle and Eric's adorable and funny kid. The family mobilized quickly. For Linda and Patty, that was tougher. They weren't able to get there while Seamus was still alive. After everything they've all been through, that kind of haunts Linda, though Michelle has a different take. But she was in the hotel room that night. So she was there. And then the nature of her job was she was in kind of her off season. And so she and Patty were able to stay with us for like three weeks afterward. And every, you know, people had to go back after Seamus died. And Eric and I were going to be just like left. Um, so having her there, especially as we were dealing with like legal stuff and police stuff, was 
it was just really helpful to have her there. You know, Michelle, she is the oldest and the one we all went to. Well, I, I can speak for myself. She was my person for sure. Um, the one I went to more than anybody. And to see her in a state of not being the strong one, obviously, like I didn't know how to navigate that. When I met Michelle on her porch, it was a few weeks after the 10-year mark of Seamus's death. She and Eric have twins now, who were eight when we talked. I could relate. My youngest was eight, and I have an 11-year-old, about the age Seamus would be. Linda was eight, of course, when she was sexually assaulted. Being eight is that age where you're still a little kid, you're getting there, you're almost a big kid, but not quite. Michelle's twins, a boy and a girl, are pretty clearly hilarious. I saw them being goofy another time when I joined one of the regular family video calls. Can anybody hear mom? Mm-mm. Not yet. Can you hear us? I assume the technical difficulties was meant purely for mom, so. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from a rift with their dad, this family is really close. They do these kind of calls weekly, especially during the pandemic. Where did Linda go? It's still run on coal, her computer is, so it takes a while. <laughs> and they see each other as often as possible. Michelle showed up on camera wearing a stick-on mustache. But when I met her a few months earlier at her house, it was easy to see she still feels the weight of losing Seamus, always. She's become an advocate for traffic safety, and she's written some amazing essays about her experience and her grief in the New York Times and other places. And she and her sister are now glued together in a weird way by both of them living through terrible events they couldn't control. I think about Seamus every second of every day and I think about what happened to him and I know that Linda thinks about her experience all the time and we both have to train ourselves to kind of shut that down you know all the time and so having it's too hard for other people it's too hard for other people there's just a constant negotiation of when do you let someone know and when do you hide it and so like when the me too movement got started and became huge i'm just imagining linda probably and we've talked about it she just was like oh finally everyone's talking about it but still you know over the years you kind of lose track of who knows and who doesn't and to introduce that information in a conversation is like, you know, you kind of feel like you're walking around carrying a bomb in your pocket all the time that you could just like drop into any conversation. So I think she and I both have learned to um, sort of be strategic in when and how we talk about it, both to protect ourselves and to protect other people. Linda talks about her strategy as having a box a place to put away how she feels about what happened to her as a kid. Talking to you today, of course I'm thinking about everything more. So it kind of just depends. I think living with it for so long, you definitely have a little compartment that you just put it away in for a while, and then um, it only comes out when it needs to. I don't know if it's healthy or not, but it's just the way I've had to deal with it. So, mm-hmm. and yeah, and I think it's easier for me since. Um, since it happened when I was so young and you just can't, you, once again, you can't talk to people because you're so young and how do you explain it to your friends? And the only person you can talk to is a therapist who, you know, 
she was nice, <laughs> but I was eight and going, going on to nine and, you know, it was hard to talk to my mom because it was very emotional for her and I didn't want to upset her. And the younger kids were too young and my friends hopefully didn't even know the meaning of the word rape. Over the years, Linda and her siblings have figured out how to lean on each other. Linda has Patty, too, of course, and he still really digs her after 15 years of marriage. I often say that when people ask about our relationship, I say, I love my wife like you read about in stories. The two of them also have great friends, some who decided to leave the park. They were starting to feel like maybe they needed to get back on the grid, too. After Seamus died and after several other crisis moments for them. We kind of had this whole series of events happen in 2011. We lost a couple uncles within two weeks of each other. Patty's mom died like a month later. Um, Just a bunch of life changes. We'd always said, we're going to move to Livingston if we ever leave the park. That's where we want to go. We love Livingston. We love our community there. It was like knowing your favorite song would come on the radio that's already like preset for you when you move here. It's the closest, biggest town north of the park, a quirky spot at the top of what's called the Paradise Valley. It's very Montana, but with lots of artists and writers and cool, funky houses. On one of my visits there, Lynn and I ended several hours of talking by Walking Daisy, her dog. Walking Daisy is like walking a drunk teenager and it's always been like this. (laughs) So you have a camper van? We do. It's that creepy white van outside of our house. Oh! (laughs) It used to be a painter's van, and we bought it from a friend and put a bed in it and kind of have, yeah, used it quite a few times. I'm scared to ride in it, though, so a little inconvenient. So you have to take both cars? Sometimes. Uh (laughs) Sometimes I just suck it up, but a couple more of our friends live right here. God, look at the colors today. For quite a few years, Patty settled behind the bar at the Murray Hotel, which is home to maybe the best bar in Montana. Linda took a pretty hard career turn and embraced office life. She went to work for a real estate title company. She was always busy there, and her friends and family knew not to call during work. That's why she was surprised when her phone showed a number she didn't know. It was someone who worked for the Yellowstone County attorney in Billings. Had a very vague conversation. They just said... Julie was going to be by to see you. We have some stuff to talk about. Um, They said she's going to be there in two days. So I think that I want to say this was on a Tuesday and I had to wait till Thursday. The only person I told was my older sister, Michelle. I was like, I think something's happening. I think they might have found the person. Why else would they have gotten in touch with me? What Linda didn't know about yet was a moment at the Montana Crime Lab that Megan Ashton will never forget. So I searched the database twice a week, I believe. In that particular one, I remember distinctly thinking, oh my God, wow, I, it, that hit, that case hit. That hit, that was huge, and it would change Linda's life again. Learn everything about it in the next episode. An Absurd Result is a production of Mopac Audio. It's reported and written by me, Jewel Banville. Executive producers are Jonathan Nauzaradin and Jonathan Beal. 
Sound editing by Robert Williams. Music by Nick Pomerito. We had production help from Shanna McGarvey and Chris Moss. Special thanks to Maurice Posley at the National Registry of Exonerations. This episode is dedicated to Daisy, Linda's gorgeous blonde-haired dog. During my reporting of this story, Daisy, who was only five, got cancer. She died a very loved pup in December 2020. R.I.P. Daisy. And also, could Linda maybe get a break? Stay tuned. And for more, visit AbsurdResultPodcast.com and follow us on social media at AbsurdResultPod. Thanks for listening.